you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Exodus 15, 13. That verse summarizes the entire book of Exodus, and we have been on a journey through this second book of the Bible. Exodus, it's about how a nation of slaves whom God rescued appointed to become his kingdom of priests. Exodus began with Israel enslaved in Egypt. They cried out to the Lord, and God answered their prayers and sent Moses, who in ten plagues crushed a world power and a worldview, and in one miraculous spectacle brought Israel through the Red Sea, permanently freeing her from Pharaoh. Manna came from heaven to feed Israel. Water came from a rock to quench their thirst. And God carried his beloved to Sinai. To your holy abode, Exodus 15, 13 says. And at Sinai, the one God of heaven and earth declared that these former slaves were his treasured possessions, are his treasured possessions. They're a holy nation. They are a kingdom of priests. He's not just speaking of the Levites, one of the 12 tribes. Of the entire nation, God says, you are my kingdom of priests. God declared his people to be holy, regal, treasured priests. This is your identity. God gets to determine our identity. And all of this was to fulfill his promise to Abraham that through Abraham all nations would be blessed. Israel would be a conduit of blessing to the entire world. When the nations interact with Israel, in doing so, they would meet the God of heaven and earth. And God elected Israel not because Israel was more special than any of the other nations, but rather because of his steadfast love. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Out of God's love, he chose Israel to mediate his presence as his priestly, regal, royal ambassadors. That is to say, Israel would never represent itself in its own speech. Israel would forever speak on behalf of God. And you know that's true for us. The apostle Peter is thinking about the book of Exodus when he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's our identity in Christ. That is our first, foremost, and primary identity in Christ. And to what end? Oh, Peter continues, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who are we? You may ask if you're new. We are people 
who have been called out of darkness, the darkness of guilt, the darkness of iniquity, the darkness of a past that we could not escape on our own. He's called us out of this darkness into his marvelous light. We are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. Our identity determines our speech. And we will never be successful ambassadors for the king we represent if we speak our personal agenda. So our speech must always possess an ambassadorial agenda. We've been sent by the king to speak on his behalf. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Now, I mention all of this to remind us of why we have the Ten Commandments. Because it's so easy to walk into a religious place like this and sit down and we learn, okay, they're going to be studying the Ten Commandments. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that the guy behind the wooden podium is going to get up and say, now do the do's and don't the don'ts and start doing what you're supposed to be doing and stop doing what you should never have been doing all along that you knew about and, and, and do this and don't do that. And now get out of here and leave me alone. And don't forget the offering on your way out. That's not where we're going, all right? And unfortunately, it's easy to come into a church service and, and you know, kind of have an understanding about the Ten Commandments as more of a, you know, do more, try harder. And, and, I, and that's sad. Um, and I'll tell you what's even sadder when someone gets up and preaches that way. A do more, try harder approach to the Ten Commandments. And that's really not what the intention of these ten words were when they were given to Israel. And you might ask, well, what, what, what are the intentions? And here they are. These ten words describe a portrait of people who have been redeemed out of slavery to an oppressive power that they could not escape on their own. These, these ten words answer the question, what ought a people look like who have been liberated from a past they could not change on their own? What ought a people look like who represent the great God of this universe. Okay. You, you see how that's just a totally different um, understanding of the intention of these commandments. And you may say, well, why, how do you know that that's the intention? Because Exodus 1 does not begin with the Ten Commandments. Exodus 1 begins with slavery, and then there's liberation by the power of God. And then God took his people to a mountain and said, now that I have rescued you, let me introduce myself to you. And let me tell you how a people ought to 
live and speak and relate and act who have been liberated from a past that they don't want to go back to, you see. That's the intention of the Ten Commandments. And that then takes us to Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, where we are going to be looking at the third commandment. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. It's on page 61 of your church Bibles. The ten words as foundational legislation given to a people about whom God loves and he has delivered, and they answer the question, how do people who have been freed from slavery stay free? What does a God follower look like? And so in commandment number one, Israel learned to worship the one true God and thus being freed from the chains of a false reality. In commandment number two, Israel learned to worship the one true God in a true way, therefore being freed from limiting God or putting God in a box via idolatry. Commandment number three frees God's people from the, here it is, sin of irresponsible flippancy. The sin of irresponsible flippancy. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Put positively, this commandment says that we are to cherish the name of the God who has changed our lives. Cherish the name of the God who has changed our lives. Uh, literally, verse 7 says, You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh, your God, for nothingness. You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh, your God, for nothingness. Let's break that down. You shall not lift up or carry. As in Exodus 19, verse 4. It's on the page just opposite how I bore you or carried you and brought you to myself. So, so to carry means more than just to haul or transport as God did in carrying Israel on eagles' wings from Egypt to Sinai. Uh, poetically, it means to, to lovingly protect and tenderly nurture as a mother over her offspring. You know, it means to take responsibility for you, know, you you pick something up and you carry it. Well, then now it's your responsibility. Well, God took responsibility and lifted Israel out of slavery. He carried Israel off and flew Israel to freedom. And therefore, the third commandment, God says he commissions us with the responsibility of using his name. And we must therefore protect the name of the one who rescued a nation of slaves and elected them as his nation of priests. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 say, you know, we're God's treasured possession. We're this kingdom of priests. We're a holy nation. Well, God did this to us out of love. Then how could we ever trivialize his name? The name Yahweh. I am who I am. It's practically untranslatable. It's the broadest verb to be. I am who I am. I am reality. 
Reality rescued Israel from Pharaoh. Reality parted the Red Sea. Reality gave Israel food and water. Reality is absolute. And there's, there's no reality beyond reality. And there's nothing trivial about reality. And then there's that phrase, in vain. You shall not lift up or carry the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. What does that mean? It means, it means emptiness or nothingness. Thus you may not speak or write or sing or otherwise use the name that depicts reality in such a way that it diminishes the one who is reality. God says, I won't let anyone get away with that. I mean, did you notice how God gave this command in verse 7? You know, he didn't say, you shall not misuse my name. It's in the third person, indicating formality. You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh, your God, for nothingness. But there's a, form, there's a formalness there. Let's say you go to a coffee shop, and that coffee shop provides you internet access, and... In some of these shops, before you get online, you know, you've got to give them your name and your email. And, and then you've got to click the box, right? It's the box that says that you agree to their terms of use. Well, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, is the terms of use commandment. It stipulates the user and directives concerning God's name. Because God's name is trademarked. Just like products in our country. So you can't take the name Coca-Cola and put it on insect repellent. That's illegal. Because Coca-Cola's trademarked. You can't take the name Kleenex and put it on sandpaper. You can't attach Yahweh to an idol. God's trademarked his name. And he has property rights. And he threatens serious penalties against unauthorized use. And all trademark violations will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And the prosecutor, the judge, the jury, and the enforcer is God. And someone might say, well, wow, I didn't know that. I mean, why is this in the tent? Let's talk about that. See, see to, to give a name implies control of what is named. A name is a token of possession. And, but regarding God, Yahweh, no one controls him. And God's name represents his character, his reputation, and his authority. His name has to do with his character. Israel witnessed supreme, sovereign untamed, unmanageable, all-powerful God. God's people witnessed his unrivaled power when he delivered them, and they were unarmed from Pharaoh's army. And thus this commandment says, you're not allowed to dumb me down, shrink me down, dilute me down, or otherwise minimize me. I am that I am, because my name has to do with my character. And God's name also signifies his reputation. 
you know, over time, our, our names tend to embody us, and they mark us, and they affect us emotionally. So when I say uh, Martin Luther King Jr., or when I say George Washington, there's an image you think of that's far different than when I say Hitler or Osama bin Laden. God declares that his reputation is at stake when we use his name. His character, his reputation, and then God's name stands for his authority over us. You know, there's a reason why police officers don't say, stop in the name of Daffy Duck. No, you, you stop because... They represent the authority of the law of the land. God is particular about how his name is used because of who he is and what he's accomplished and the authority that he possesses. And freedom-loving Americans really, you know, cringe at this word authority. But God as creator and ruler of all, he has all authority and rule. He expects us to respect that. Years ago, Ted Koppel, who uh, was a journalist for ABC News, said these words. It was a critique on television. He said, there's not much room for TV. There's not much room on TV for complexity. You can partake of our daily banquet without drawing on any intellectual resources without either physical or moral discipline. We require nothing of you, only that you watch. And gradually, it must be said, we are beginning to make our mark on the American psyche. We have actually convinced ourselves that slogans will save us. Oh, shoot up if you must, but use a clean needle. Enjoy sex whenever and with whomever you wish, but be sure to wear a condom. No. The answer is no, not no because it isn't cool or smart or you might end up in jail or dying in an AIDS ward, but no because it's wrong. Because we have spent 5,000 years as a race of rational human beings trying to drag ourselves out of the primeval slime by searching for truth and moral absolutes and in place of capital T truth, we have discovered facts. For moral absolutes, we've substituted moral ambiguity. And we now communicate with everyone and say absolutely nothing. We have reconstructed the Tower of Babel, and it's a television antenna. A thousand voices producing a daily parody of democracy in which everyone's opinion is afforded equal weight regardless of substance or merit. Indeed, it can even be argued that the opinions of real weight tend to sink with barely a trace of television's ocean banalities. Our society finds capital T truth too strong a medicine to digest undiluted. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It's a harrowing reproach. And what Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions. They are commandments. They are, not were. Authority, character, reputation. That's why God wants us to respect his name and, and be responsible with it. Now, let's talk about several ways that we misuse God's name. Um, well, one way is sorcery. 
magic incantations involving God's name. I don't see too many sorcerers out in our congregation today. So. But it was a problem in the Old Testament. Um, Balaam, who was a not-so-ethical prophet, told Balak, who was an extremely unethical king, um, he was the kind of prophet who would... Uh, invoke God's name with magical incantations. And that's forbidden. But then there's perjury. Invoking God's name in an oath to make a lie appear to be the truth. Leviticus 19.12 You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19.12. And, and Jesus extended this even in Matthew 5 when he said, just don't, just don't swear, period. You know, let your yes be yes. Some people think that you know, if they're not on the witness stand and they're not under oath, well, then they can misuse the truth. Jesus says, no, there's never a time when you're not on record if you're my follower. So let your less, yes be yes. So sorcery, perjury, and then, and this is what many of us think of when we think of this commandment, so let's talk about it. There's profanity. To profane means to take something unique and cheapen it. And we profane when we use God's name as an expletive. And such language is unbecoming for a royal priesthood. Remember who you are. You're God's treasured possession. And to be absolutely clear, church family, only Christ has the license to say, go to hell or damn you. Only Christ has the authority to say that. He alone has authority over anyone's eternal destiny. And one day he will say to Satan and his demons, go to hell. And they will. Note to self, we're not Jesus. Sometimes we hear less blatant profanity. You know, I swear to God, or great God Almighty, or these are careless phrases that lift up Yahweh's name for nothingness. Would you casually make jokes about 9-11? Or Auschwitz? I mean, that's off limits. How much more the name of our high king? And some may think, well, I don't really mean it when I say it, and that's the point. When you say it, mean it. Now, I can think of three kinds of people who violate the third command. The first are the uninformed. And maybe these folks are unchurched. Maybe they've never read the Bible. And maybe they're young children who don't know better, and they need to be coached. Then there are the undisciplined. These folks know what's right and what's not, but in a fit of frustration, they get cut off in traffic or they you know, hit their thumb with their hammer or they miss their birdie putt on the 18th. Um, they slip. And profanity is the exception, not the rule. And they're crushed when they realize what they did and they immediately make amends. The uninformed, the undisciplined. But then there are the irreligious. 
who feel no remorse when they flagrantly violate the third commandment. They are confirmed unbelievers. They've never confessed Christ as Savior. They have no regard for God. It doesn't bother them to take God's name in vain. In fact, they kind of enjoy it. It's their way of saying, you don't scare me. It's like the teen who smokes in front of mom and dad for the very first time. For months, he's been hiding out in alleys and and cars, smoking on the sly, scarfing down Lifesavers mints. And one day he walks into the family room, lights one up, takes a long drag, and, and says to mom and dad, what are you going to do about it? Well, there's good news and bad news here. And the bad news is that one day they're going to have to answer to a holy God for their filthy mouth. And they'll have no excuses, no time to mend their ways. They will be the deserving victim of the wrath of the God they dishonored their whole life. I mean, does not the verse say, the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And someone might say, well, okay, well, what's the punishment for that? Do you really want to find out? The good news is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that not good news? Listen, Jesus was crucified between uh, uh, two assassins. Um, and at first, one of the gospels says that they both railed against him. Okay. But you know, the cross has a way of wearing you down and making you aware of reality. And the reality was they were not going to get down off that cross alive. And so Luke says, finally, one of the other assassins said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So just hours before, he was profaning Jesus' name. But there on that cross, he repented. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Is that not the loving kindness of our heavenly Father? We can repent to the one whom we've profaned and he's waiting to embrace us as his child. Sorcery, perjury, profanity, these are unauthorized uses of God's holy name. And you all probably expected someone like me to say what you just heard me say. But there's a, another dimension of this commandment that, in my opinion, touches all of us in our church family. And, uh, you know, in the church world, people can sometimes try to boost their own credibility by saying things like, well, the Lord told this to me, or God is on my side on this one, or I sense it deeply in my spirit. Well, Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 6 says, they say the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them. And that's called false prophecy. Another word for false prophecy is the word forgery. And throughout history, God's name has been forged to endorse the crusades, slave trade, political parties. And the results are always disastrous. 
And what this command tells us is that we are not allowed to associate God's name with something God is not associated with. We're not a, you're not allowed to sign God's name on your permission slip. And when someone says, God told me, or I've prayed about this and God said to me, or God wants me happy, well, who's going to argue with that? And this is not to say, please hear me, this is not to say that God no longer prompts his people to acts in love. It's that the third commandment forbids using God's name to fulfill my personal agenda. So when you say the Lord told me to do this, you better be ready to explain that in a way that runs deeper than it's just how I feel. Because it's possible that how you feel does not square with God's word. And inward feelings should not be promoted as God's authoritative word. That's forgery. Now, we can say we're praying, we're researching, we're putting together our best thinking, we are on our knees, and this appears to be the wise move for our, our family, our marriage, our children, our future, our church, and, and, and we think that God will be honored if we do this. Now, that's not in vain at all. <laughs> that's humility. And humility is the language of royal priesthoods. And it needs to be our language, church. Amen? And I just, I really want to share with you our heart on this, my heart on this, because, um, and, um, I read this line this week, and it just, um, it challenged me, and it convicted me. It's this sentence. The most attractive quality in a leader. Now, just pause there for a minute and let your mind go somewhere. The most attractive quality. What in your mind is the most attractive quality in a leader? The most attractive quality in a leader is when you discover that the inside is bigger than the outside. And the third commandment is really about challenging us to always have insides that are bigger than the outside. And, and you know, that's not always true of everyone in pastoral ministry. I'll bet you all could think of examples of Christian leaders and pastors whose books or sermons or organizations were far more impressive than the real person you found when you looked behind the curtain. And, if, you know, there's nothing innately sinful about books and tours and whatnot, but, but they do have the potential to inflate a person's outside while simultaneously diminishing the inside such that, you know, their stage presence is better than their prayer life or their preaching is better than their parenting. Or they give the impression of living their faith more than they actually do when you get to know them. And so when you see someone whose inside is bigger than the outside, I'm telling you, it's just fresh air. It's just immensely refreshing. You can hear it in their prayers and you can see it in their homes and you can tell it by their talk and 
You can tell it by the way they treat others for whom they have nothing to gain. And when you see it, you realize you're looking at the real deal. And it, it makes you think, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. It's, it's like what Mr. Tumnus said in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. He said it's like an onion, except that as you continue to go in and in, each circle is larger than the last. And so that's, that's my prayer. It's my prayer for me. And I would ask you to pray that for me. If you want to pray something for me, it would be, oh God, help Randy's inside be bigger than the outside. I mean, and, and then what if we prayed that together as a church family? Or as one songwriter put it, so let my deeds outrun my words and let my life outweigh my songs. Unbroken praise be yours. Now then, I want to just close by um, uh, inviting our worship team up on stage. <laughs> and while they're taking stage, I want to talk about, see, I don't want us to leave here thinking, well, the commandment says we can't use God's name. That's not what the commandment says. The commandment says we cannot misuse God's name. Well, then how does God want us to use his name? Oh, church family, do you know God gives unregulated permission to use his name in evangelism? Uh, when Peter and John were called in uh, in the book of Acts by the Sanhedrin and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus... Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. You never misuse God's name when you use it to tell others about the saving power of Christ. Additionally, you never misuse God's name in conscientious prayer. Now, the Bible tells us not to babble on mindlessly when we pray in public. Don't pray for the show of it, but when you're alone with God, use his name. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul says in Philippians, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, our Father. Evangelism, conscientious prayer, and then worship. God gives us permission to use his name when we worship him. I will exalt you, my God, the king. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. God gives us unregulated permission to share his name, pray his name, and worship him. And I want us to do that right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son Jesus, whose name is the greatest, highest, holiest name. It's the name that means God saves. God saves, and you have, and you do. And so now, Lord, I pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock, our redeemer, and God's people said,